Welcome to Slate Money. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and other places. Hello. Emily, so if you want to if you want to sum up this episode, would you say that the first segment is me saying that inequality going down is good, but then the second segment is me saying that inequality is also fine? Yes. Yes, Felix. That is what I would I think sums it up nicely. It's very complicated for you. We are going to talk about inequality. This is the big news that I wrote about this week, which is not really new news. It's been going on for the past 20 years or so. But inequality, global inequality is coming down. This is good, right? We're going to discuss. There are reasons why some people think it might not be. We are going to talk about Instant Pot and their bankruptcy. We are also going to talk, and this is really why we all came together today, about posting images of your fabulous beach lifestyle when you have caused financial harm to other people. Is this insensitive or is this just what people do these days when they're on holiday as it's just on Instagram? And there's even a Sleep Plus, which I can highly recommend you listen to all about commercial real estate. If it collapses, will any of us feel it? Or is it just going to be a financial reconfiguration? It's all coming up on Slate Money. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, so let's start with inequality because Ranko Milanovic, he's at City University here in New York. He is my favorite inequality researcher, definitely top five. And he has this big essay in Foreign Affairs, which came out this week. And he has crunched the numbers on global inequality and says it is basically the lowest it has been in 150 years, which is kind of amazing. And should we be out there celebrating, Elizabeth? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the the overall numbers are down. And just to give uh, listeners a sense of how they're measured, there's something called the Gini coefficient uh, that basically determines inequality on a scale of 1 to 100. And just for reference, in 2000, the global number was 69. And in 2018, it had dropped to 60. And I'm pretty sure it's below 60 now. Like, this is all pre-pandemic data that Branco's using. And as we know, the pandemic was a great equalizing force, certainly in the United States, but in other countries too. So I would be surprised if it hadn't dropped even further over the previous, over the last five years. Well, I don't think this is good news. Okay, Emily, let's have your contrarian take. Well, it's good news, bad news, okay? Obviously, I'm not going to be out on a podcast arguing that a reduction in inequality around the world is bad news. But what's happening at the same time, there's this reduction in inequality around the world, primarily because of uh, China's incredible economic growth over the past two decades. At the same time, within countries, inequality is actually widening a little bit. According to what you wrote, Felix, and to the piece in foreign policy. The poorer populations in 
rich Western com- countries are becoming worse off. And as the years go on, if things continue apace, then perhaps like a lower income person in the United States will be worse off than their counterparts in China or other countries. Let me like add a whole bunch of asterisks and footnotes to that, because that's not exactly how I would put it. The poor in the United States and I'm not not quite so much in Europe, but definitely in the United States are better off, as we know, you know, over the course of the pandemic and since like that has been a wonderful force for the reduction of inequality in the United States. That obviously isn't included in Branko's piece because he stops in 2018. So that's the first piece of good news there. What he is saying is that the poor in the United States, even if they're getting less unequal in the United States, even if they're getting richer in the United States, they're getting richer more slowly than the upper middle classes in China. And so what they're doing is they're dropping down like the global rankings. So whereas a poor person in the United States might have been at the 60th percentile a couple of decades ago, globally speaking, now they might be at the 40th percentile, globally speaking. That doesn't mean they're getting poorer. It just means that the rest of the world is getting so much richer that there are more people in the rest of the world who are richer than poor people in America. Well, first, I think the um, the gains by lower income Americans from the past few years are going to be eroded away pretty quickly. I guess I have a more negative take of, of that progress than you do, Felix. But I think I'm also a little bit nationalistic and it kind of bums me out to hear that the U.S. isn't going to be the richest, most powerful country for much longer because there's so many benefits that accrue to middle class Americans like me from that, that I see this as good news, bad news. Emily likes the unipolar American hegemony. <laughs> I mean, look, <laughs> it's not so bad. It's not so bad that our poor our poorer citizens are relatively rich if you look around the world they're still like better off than most people and if that's going to change i feel like that's going to lead to some bad outcomes here here in the united states like bad things happen once if you were the richest country and you're no longer the richest country bad things start to happen like look at look at your former country felix what about it i mean it brexited it's not doing great yeah, I feel like Brexit long postdates the decline of the British <laughs> Empire. I feel I feel like, you know, the the big decline of of the United Kingdom from, you know, call it 1914 to 1979, something like that when you know, it just became a lot poorer on on the global level and lost its empire. You know, it did not feel great, but it was I I feel like that kind of humbling reminder that the rest of the world matters is salutary and probably a good thing. I just don't see Americans being humbly reminded of anything. <laughs> um, the, the one thing I do want to say, the one thing I do want to say is just to pick up on what you're saying about the increase of inequality within countries. Um, basically what we saw during the cold war was a significant increase in inequality between countries and a decrease of inequality within countries. And this was global. This happened in the United States, but it also happened in China. It also happened in Russia. It also happened in India. Like Basically, everywhere you looked, countries were becoming more equal, but the differences between them were were getting bigger and bigger. And the differences between them dwarfed the 
you know, increasing inequality within countries. And so overall inequality went up. Both of those things have now reversed. We have rapidly falling inequality between countries and marginally rising inequality within countries. And it is not great that inequality within countries is increasing. But I just want to put that in perspective and say that, you know, if you disaggregate that 60 number of global Gini and you try and sort of break it out into its within country and between country components, the within country component is 13 and the between country component is 47. So you you want to like just put that in perspective that it's the inequality between countries that really constitutes the overwhelming majority of global inequality still. So there are other measures of inequality besides Gini that people look at. And, you know, one, for instance, is supplemental poverty measure, which, you know, we, we use here. And by those standards during the pandemic, uh, just the $11 billion in stimulus payments had a huge effect on inequality. They lifted 11 million people out of poverty. And, and you know, that was a measure that was expected to be worse. And so stimulus that, payments that, actually I don't worked. think that's different. The supplemental poverty measure just measures poverty. It doesn't measure inequality. Obviously, if po- poverty goes down, that's a sign that inequality is going down. But yeah, absolutely. If pov- the stimulus reduced poverty and reduced inequality and reduced inequality as measured by Gini, these are all basically different ways of looking at the same thing. I would just add that, like I was saying before, yes, the stimulus reduced poverty and poverty went down in the United States. But I really expect it to go back up because the stimulus is gone. All those benefits are over. People are getting kicked off like the Medicaid rolls. SNAP benefits are the supplemental SNAP benefits went away. I don't have much reason to believe that that reduction in poverty and one assumes inequality is a permanent reduction. I feel like it is a permanent reduction for the working poor that the massive increase in wages that we've seen at the bottom end of the income spectrum is probably here to stay. People who saw their income go up from $7 an hour to $15 an hour are not going to see it go back down to $7 an hour. And on top of that, a lot of the welfare state benefits that people get are index linked. And so with inflation, they've been going up as well. You're absolutely right that some of the excess poverty reduction measures that we implemented during the pandemic are going to go away. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the poverty rate tick up a little, but I really don't think it's going to go back to pre-pandemic levels. Mm. We could bet on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But do we want to zoom out? Because Elizabeth was mentioning before um, the role Africa could play in whether or not inequality is further reduced going forward or not. Yeah, there are two big question marks going forward. We know that there has been this massive reduction in inequality over the past 20 or so years. And a lot, but not all of that, is the rise of the Chinese middle classes. The consequence of that is that it's really hard to reduce inequality a lot more by China getting richer. China is going to continue to get richer, but since it's already close to being a middle-income country, that isn't going to reduce inequality very much. If we want to reduce inequality a lot from here, we need to see it in India and we need to see it in Africa. And India seems to be on the right path 
um, economically speaking. Uh, there's this wonderful statistic that back in the late 80s, Germany had 7% of global GDP and India had 3%. And then now those two numbers are reversed. So India is doing better than some people realize, but Africa really isn't. Africa in terms of economic inequality is really kind of going nowhere. And Branco, for one, is relatively pessimistic that that's going to change anytime soon. The one thing I'd mention about Africa is that if you measure things like health outcomes, um, it's a huge success story. The you know number of children who die before their fifth birthday, say something like that, like that. Those things have come down massively, but in terms of actual dollar income, that really isn't showing up, and it's not clear when and how that might happen. Are there any uh, global benefits to China having a more robust middle class? Are there any global disbenefits? No, it's fantastic, right? No, it benefits to you know globally, not specifically to China. Right. I mean, it's it's amazing. China is the biggest or the second biggest market in the world for, you know, name your big global company. GM sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. Nike, Starbucks, McDonald's, Apple. China is just an absolutely enormous and incredibly fast-growing market for all of them. If you took out the Chinese market, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of billions of dollars would get wiped off of Apple Apple's market cap immediately because that's where the future growth is. So, yeah, the the world's exporters are all wanting to export to China and the, and the growth of the Chinese middle classes is in very large part a function of the fact that they are making the goods and, you know, especially the goods, but even increasingly the digital services that the rest of the world wants. And we are paying for those and benefiting from them. And yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I mean, I, I agree with your argument. I'm just saying that, you know, if you look at what, you know, the arguments that particularly Republicans are making in Congress right now about the rise of China, they would prefer a weak economic state because they think that we're too economically interdependent. See, yeah, I, I don't buy that at all. I, I do think that geopolitical the geopolitically and in, in, in terms of like military strength, there is a big rivalry between the US and China. And there is like a strategic interest in having a weaker China. But just on purely economic grounds, uh, that argument makes no sense to me at all. So I, I think I understand the implications of why inequality is bad in the United States. And I'm not talking about why poverty is bad. I don't need to talk that through with anybody. I get it, I hope. Um, but the idea that inequality is bad because it sort of bifurcates society and it decreases, I guess, economic growth also. And I know that inside the U.S., but when I look so for global globally a reduction in inequality would that mean the same thing would be would a reduction in inequality mean that more countries are sort of on more equal footing with each other a would it mean that there's less of that kind of like bifurcation there's more allegiances cross cross country allegiances there's more peace are those are those the results do we think so one of the big problems in the rich world um, politically speaking, is inbound migration from poorer countries. You know, this has been a huge political issue in the United States for the past few years from Central America. Um, it's a huge political issue in Europe from Syria and Turkey and places like that. 
And the more equal you are, the fewer economic forces drive that kind of migration, right? A relatively uneducated Nigerian, say, if they immigrate to Norway, can make 18 times as much money as they could in Nigeria. So there's a huge economic incentive to migrate. And those migration patterns cause political backlash domestically in the um, countries where people are migrating to. And the more equality you have, the more you get, first of all, migration in the opposite direction. You get people saying, oh, I'm just going to go live in Nigeria because it's fun and it's warm and it's cheap or whatever. You know? And then also you get people and also you just get less sort of economic incentive to do that migration um you will still get the global warming incentives but anything we can do to just put people on a more equal footing with each other has got to be a good thing but i want to take a little break here and then after that we'll talk about another little indication of wealth that people are getting upset about Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. So one of the things that inequality causes is jealousy. When we see our peers sunning themselves in a, li in a life of luxury, we feel jealous of them and we don't like that. And so this causes headlines. Um, a few weeks ago... Maybe it was a couple of months ago. Larry Summers called into a Bloomberg TV show from his house in the Caribbean and said something about how the unemployment rate would need to come up. And this caused all manner of headlines about how, like, you know, how dare Larry Summers say that people need to lose their jobs when he's lying on a beach in the Caribbean. More recently, there was a New York Times article about the founders of Three Arrows Capital who similarly like uh, hanging out in Bali and having a nice life and people were like, well, how dare you have a nice life because you had a hedge fund that imploded and that caused the crypto winter and lots of people lost lots of, lots of money and therefore, what the fuck? And I DM'd Emily about this and I'm like, Emily, you're going to be totally in favor of people taking vacations, right? And she was like, "No, not at all." And so now I feel like we have a we have an actual debate. Well, you misunderstood me. I'm not against people <laughs> taking vacations. Everyone can take vacation, of course, of course. But don't post the pictures. Like, don't do an interview where you say you you want people to lose their jobs from the beach. Like, show a little respect. That is what I'm saying. I'm saying there are 
I'm saying that there are rules here. There are social norms that we should abide by that when something happens that's serious, like your hedge fund, or I don't even know if three hours, arrows capital is really a hedge fund, but your company implodes and a lot of people lose money as a result. Like don't post pics on Insta that all the people that lost a lot of money can see of you like living your best life in Bali. Look, you don't go to a funeral wearing like your brightest, flashiest clothes. Like I don't put on my sequin ball gown, right? And go pay my respects to the dead. You don't go on Bloomberg in front of a beach backdrop and be like, people have to suffer and lose their jobs. Like it's just poor form. That's what I'm saying. It's insensitivity, but it also reinforces the idea that a lot of people have that, you know, elites live very differently and that they may not be good custodians of the things that they claim to be. So particularly when, you know, you have a hedge fund that just went bankrupt and the principals are all sunning themselves on the beach. If you were an LP, you would you would sort of you would be annoyed by that, I think. So can you unpack that a little bit? Because the LPs in hedge funds, and we should explain what that means. That means limited partners, which is basically the investors in the hedge fund. Um, let's put to one side the fact that Three Arrows didn't really have investors, but like, let's assume that it did. Those people would themselves be rich people who regularly take holidays in Bali and have a nice life. So given that, like, what would their beef be? Uh, their beef would be that, you know, they, they're treating the principals as managers. I mean, I've been in LP meetings in my previous life where C-level executives were yelled at for taking too many vacations or driving a fancy car in a corporate lease. I think they're, they're just regarded as symbols of, you know, maybe irresponsible excess or in the case of companies that have already failed, maybe a, a sort of lack of remorse for any bad decision making. Right. And so that's, I think, the the sort of unspoken thing here when you see headlines in The New York Times about, you know, the three arrows capital guys that living their best life in Bali is this kind of feeling of if you took a bunch of risks and those risks blew up and you failed, then you should feel remorseful about that. And if you feel remorseful about that, number one, you should be out there apologizing and saying things like, I will devote the rest of my life to try and make good on the money that people lost. And then number two, what you definitely shouldn't be doing is actually like smiling or being happy. It feels incredibly sort of Calvinist to me, this idea that, you know, once you've caused some harm in the world, then you should not evince any happiness or enjoyment. But I don't, I mean, that might be like the big theme behind it. Like you must suffer for the rest of your days. That's very American. Everyone seeking justice in the form of severe punishment for others. But I think it's more like what we were talking about with inequality. It's just this like burning reminder to the people who did lose money, not the LPs because they're all a bunch of rich guys, but like, you know. All the little guys who lost money in crypto, they do exist and they feel bad and they're not in Bali. It's kind of just like rubbing in their faces. Like we were better than you the whole time. We had a plan the whole time. You were suckers and we weren't. And look at us now. There's an element of that. And no one's saying you you shouldn't be happy or go on vacation. Just like don't rub it in people's faces. Rich people have known that for a long time. You don't rub it in people's faces. I mean, that's kind of like gone away and 
in our time in 2023, where like conspicuous consumption is very much fine with everyone, except I guess in the world of succession where everything's beige or quiet luxury or whatever. Stealth wealth. Yeah. But I think there's something to be said about that. Don't rub it in everyone's face. As an English person, I totally understand the impetus here, right? Which is the quiet, non-showy wealth, right? Don't go out there and flaunt your wealth. Just, like, quietly enjoy nice things um, in private. And then you, you know, you you do find yourself on the Riviera sometimes and you see some Russian who's flaunting everything and driving around in a Ferrari and has a whole bunch of you know, hot and cold running models surrounding him. And you're like, yeah, that's déclassé, you know, that's nouveau. And you sneer at it. And so I totally understand that impetus. But I think that's a slightly different thing, right? One one of them is this, you know, sort of, I don't like displays of conspicuous consumption. But I don't think that what we're talking about really here is displays of conspicuous consumption. What we're talking about really here is, you know, in Larry Summers' case, he's doing his work from home thing, which he does quite regularly when he's at home in Boston and it doesn't look very conspicuous. And when he's doing it when he's at home in the Caribbean, then it looks more conspicuous because there's a palm tree behind him. In the case of the Three Arrows Capital guys, you know, they are living relatively low-key lives, but it does so happen that they have Instagram accounts. And if you're living a life in Bali, then your Instagram account, again, is going to have palm trees and beaches and stuff on it. And it, I think it's just part of the way that the our quotidian existence is more visible now to the rest of the world because of Instagram and, you know, remote hits on TV shows and and that kind of thing, that people get a glimpse into it and they're like, whoa. Well, I think it's also, it depends on the person doing it. You know, Larry Summers has kind of made a career in the last few years of being consistently wrong about a lot of things. And one of the criticisms of him is that he's just out of touch with current reality. So when he, you know, is, is filming from a beach, in what looks like vacation and says, you know, we should have higher unemployment. It looks like not just callousness, but a complete misunderstanding of what's happening in the world. And I think that's part of what people distrust. It's not that he's not a conspicuous consumption guy. He's not backdrop was not gaudy or anything like that. It's just in the context of what he's saying, it feels inappropriate. Also, you're, you're saying like in these times with Instagram and with TV, it's inescapable, but it's a choice. It's a choice to post to Instagram. It's a choice to go on TV with that as your backdrop and say that we need to, you know, we need people to lose their jobs. That's that's a choice that you're making. And it's insensitive. If I am, you know, the founder of Three Arrows Capital and I have an Instagram account and I'm making lots of money and everyone is looking up to me and I'm a crypto, you know, um, superstar, oh, like basically what you're saying is in the eternal tradition of Axios, former editor-in-chief Nick Johnston, now publisher, um, the minute that that hedge fund collapses, I should delete my account. I mean, I, I think a good PR professional would tell you to do something along those lines. Maybe not delete the account, but stop posting from you know yeah. your your. Beach. Aren't the rules different for public figures? I think they are. I feel like there was some actual reporting that went into like finding these pictures. I don't think it was a, a flaunting so much as it was like, oh, 
We have found these people in Bali. I guess, but they they posed for the New York Times and in photos, smiling right there for all to see. I'm I'm not saying that they shouldn't they shouldn't have some joy in their lives and happiness, but I just just use some judgment and sensitivity. The the one thing I will say about the the three arrows guys in particular is like they really didn't have LPs. They didn't. They really didn't have investors who trusted them to you know make them lots of money and who they treated like suckers to use Emily's term. Um, they what they did was they borrowed money from large crypto companies and then went bust and weren't able to pay it back. And the really dumb players here were all of the people like, you know, Genesis or Voyager or Gemini or whoever you want to, you know, call it, who lent money to Three Arrows Capital on an unsecured basis because they were Three Arrows and obviously they were super successful. So why would you need security? I mean, that was just idiotic. I don't think it was the Three Arrows guys who were being stupid. I think it was the lenders. But the the collapse of Three Arrows is what did lead to Crypto Winter, which led to all manner of people losing their money of all in, sorts, all shapes and crypto sizes. crypto ever had any real value. And led to some bank collapses, too, along the way, oh, which Silvergate? freaked everybody out. Yeah. I mean, there were repercussions. And Silvergate and the yep. signature, too. I don't know. Just don't, don't <laughs> post your beach photos if you just collapsed a whole industry. I don't know. Is that, I was really shocked that you took this up as a cause. So I wanted to take a quick break, but I also want to stay on this question of judgmentalism. Oh, boy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so this is this is the question. And I'm going to talk about a very interesting Amanda Mull piece that appeared in The Atlantic after Instant Brands filed for bankruptcy. And Instant Brands is the parent company of Instant Pot. Instant Pot, which is Instant Pot, by the way, not Instapot. Everyone calls it Instapot. It's Instant Pot, and it is a pressure cooker that was very popular for a while, and then everyone got the pressure cooker, and then they didn't need the second one. And then sometimes they even got a second one and didn't know why. And eventually the demand for Instant Pots went down and the number of Instant Pots being sold went down. And this normally would just mean that Instant Pot was making less money than it was before. But somewhere along the way, Instant Pot had been rolled up into this hold co along with Pyrex and various other kitchen brands owned by private equity, leveraged up and the result was that when sales went down, the company filed for bankruptcy. And this caused a bunch of people writing on the internet about how 
private equity is stupid and terrible and they got it all wrong and this is a bad thing. And I just want to take this opportunity, since it's my podcast, or at least one third my podcast, to say, come on, people, this is capitalism at its best. People borrowing money, creating money, investing money, doing R&D, creating new brands, trying to create new brands, failing, trying to create growth, failing. And this is good. And if you and the whole point of limited liability companies is that they are what drives the economy. And we want people taking these kinds of risks. And we want people trying to create new brands. And we don't want people just sitting there on their instant part making money when sales go up and, ma and, and making less money when sales go down. We want people trying to you know, do new things in the world and take risks. And the people taking the risks here were exactly the people who are best placed to take those risks. And so far, as far as I can tell, there haven't been any layoffs. The You know, everyone's still getting paid in full. All of the vendors are being paid in full. All of the suppliers are being paid in full. And so you get, you know... The people who bought, lent money to instant brands are now going to take over the company and you're going to do a debt for equity swap and there's going to be weird things happening to the capital stack. But that's fine. I don't understand why anything bad or why, why people think that something bad happened here. Well, I think there, there's a, and, and, and most piece she sort of points to this, there's, there's a consensus that they, you know, expanded some product lines into directions that didn't make sense. And, you know, one recurring criticism of private equity companies when they come in and do this is that a lot of them don't have operational experience to do that sort of thing and, they, and or they don't have domain experience specifically so i don't think the argument is that private equity coming in and doing stuff is bad i think it's that the specific decisions that this firm made didn't make sense for what the product was and you know what had made instant pot successful i buy that it's interesting that instant pot filed for bankruptcy. I don't know if it's good or bad. I feel like th that doesn't, that's not an issue here. You know what I mean? It's just sort of interesting. And then bigger picture, we could have a conversation about whether private equity is a useful thing or not. And I sort of don't know. We can have a conversation about whether bankruptcy is a useful thing, right? And I think clearly it is. The having limited liability corporations and chapter 11 is a really useful way of building a vibrant economy. And it is almost too easy to turn around when the company filing for bankruptcy is owned by private equity and say, oh, let me tell you something about how private equity is actually really stupid. Which, you know, if you look at the historical returns to private equity, they're not that stupid you know the historical returns of private equity have been pretty damn good over the past few decades um obviously there are there are lots of failures along the way but that's part of the business model and i think that kind of ability to embrace failure is a good thing yeah i think you know what it is i think that when people hear such and such company filed for bankruptcy they're like oh no the worst has happened but actually bankruptcy could be like you're saying a very good thing and um and recently, a few companies have tried to use bankruptcy to sort of like solve their problems. <laughs> but maybe that's a separate topic. But I think there is this there is this notion that bankruptcy is a bad thing. And it's it's not that simple. There is definitely a notion out there. And financial journalists are really bad at communicating this, um, that if a company files for bankruptcy, then it's basically that's the end of the company. And that's absolutely not what's happening in this case. It does happen. Like the... The one I always think of is Toys R Us. That was also a private equity thing. And 
it filed for bankruptcy and then it just closed. It just liquidated and there is no Toys R Us anymore. And that was kind of shocking to me because nearly always when you have a strong brand like that and a going concern, you know, going and a going concern, you can make the case that someone would want to take it over if you manage to get rid of all of the indebtedness and say, hey, I can try and make a go of this. But they didn't in that case. And that was shocking. But in general, if you have a bunch of factories and a bunch of people making instant pots and there's still demand for instant pots, then great. You just get rid of all of the indebtedness and you keep on going. I will say that the measure you're using to judge whether or not private equity is good or bad is is quite limited. And I, we could probably do a whole episode or maybe we could read Gretchen Morgenstern's new book on private equity to really dig into it. But like just measuring private equity returns and saying like, it's great kind of diminishes like all the other kind of like social impacts and and other impacts. Sure, sure. I mean, that we, we can 100% have, a, have an episode or a, a segment on private equity. Is it good or bad? You know, is it good for employment? Is it good for society? All of that kind of thing. But this idea that, you know, the strategic decisions that instant, brand, instant brands made in terms of trying to expand into new devices beyond just the instant pot and you know they're trying to make mixes and there are already other popular very uh, other very popular mixes and you know how could they have been so stupid to think that they could compete with the existing mixes you know this idea of the strategic idiocy on the part of private equity equity is kind it almost cuts against this idea of oh my god they're evil geniuses who just try and do financial engineering and fire everyone. But yeah, I think exactly that idea of taking risks and trying to expand and borrowing money to expand, and this is the like at the heart of it, is that in capitalism, the way that money is created is when banks make loans. Like it is banks who create money. That is how money is created. And so when you have a big company like Instant Pot or Instant Brands borrowing money from banks to invest in trying to create new product lines that is exactly what creates what you know what creates money and you need that to happen in any good working economy yeah i don't i don't think that people think of private equity though as a class that overwhelmingly generates innovation you know i think that's more venture capital i think private equity has a reputation for financial engineering because that is, that is mostly what happens. Perhaps, but, you know, it's easy to think of, I don't know, Silver Lake, and there's lots of private equity companies who seem to be quite good at innovation too. Is Felix out here defending private equity, defending rich people, rubbing their wealth in your face. I'm out here defending private <laughs> equity, defending rich people taking holidays. I am just, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Next Ooh. week, by the way, we're going to have Anna Shemansky on the show. So I will no longer have to be the most red-blooded capitalist on the show. We can let Anna slot straight back into her traditional role as, as, as the red-blooded capitalist. But for this one, I'm, I'm going to, I'll happily take that role. Um, we should have a numbers round, though. Emily, did you have a number this week? Uh, yes, Felix, I did. My number is 1.5. That's a percentage, 1.5%. That is the increase in monthly asking rents nationwide in May. So in other words, rents nationwide went up 1.5%. That's month on month, like in May from April? No, May over last year. So 1.5% in May over May 22. Okay, so that seems small. It's a small increase, and people are very excited about it. 
Um, they think this is great news because rents and um, real estate prices have been driving up inflation. Um, but I just want to say that it, it still means that rents are going up and that for a lot of people who rent, uh, their rents have gone up by like insane amounts over the past few years. So it doesn't mean that rents are getting cheaper. It doesn't mean um, rental prices are getting more affordable. So wait, ex explain explain this. How does it, you, you're saying like, because they've gone up a lot in the past few years, that just the last year isn't doesn't show you the big picture? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, um, it's not a, like, we don't have to like celebrate this necessarily or the big picture is but it, at least it at least it shows that it's a move very much in the right direction sure. right? if if rent in, if rent is falling in real terms which it is if it's only gone up 1.5% a year then that's something to celebrate yeah but it's just asking rent so in other words these are rents on apartments that you newly move into you know new leases and and so it's not looking at everyone else's rents that are renewal rents those are still either staying the same or going up because those don't go down. And most people have had their rents go up a lot, a lot in recent years. So yeah, it's good news that the pace of growth is slowing, but it's a very incomplete picture. And I feel like it gets undersold sometimes in the media. I have a really dumb number, which is 420,000. I love this number, even though it's dumb. It is the number of elevators in Greece. Like, how does Greece have 420,000 elevators? Apparently, the entire United Kingdom, which has six times the population and 15 times the GDP, has 292,500 elevators. I feel like there's a 420-obsessed donor somewhere who could give you a good conspiracy theory <laughs> about this. I need, I, need, I need a Slate Money listener to run me the elevator to GDP league table. And I would be shocked if Greece isn't at the top of this. I feel like Greece has really won the, you know, we're just going to put elevators everywhere um, war. And good for them because elevators, and I have said this many times on the show in the past, elevators are just the best way of moving people that humanity has ever come up with. They're amazing and genius and wonderful and energy efficient and brilliant. And everyone should have more elevators. And if Greece has lots of elevators, that is fantastic. Are you sure that 420,000 elevators is a lot? Like, how do you even know? How many are there in the U.S.? This is what we need to find out. We need to have a deep dive on elevators. Um, interestingly, um, the United States under indexes on elevator uh, on on number of elevators because it has so many single story buildings for, for for one. Also, because elevators are incredibly expensive in the United States, it's much more expensive to install an elevator in the United States than it is to install an elevator in Europe, um, because elevators in the United States have different safety standards and, importantly, are much bigger. Than European elevators. The European elevators need to be big enough to fit a wheelchair, whereas American elevators need to be big enough to fit an entire stretcher. And that makes them much more expensive and really creates disincentive to install elevators. Well, I st I'm standing by for your elevator chart, your elevator data interactive. <laughs> I, I feel like that we cannot have too much elevator content on Slate Money or basically anywhere. So um, if any of you guys know an elevator expert, let me know. Um, you know. Elevators are much bigger, like three or four story elevators. They're important too. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is 
109, 109, and that's dollars. And for $109, you can buy a Jensen Huang leather jacket from Jacket Pop. And Jensen Huang is the CEO of NVIDIA, which is now one of the biggest companies in tech, thanks to AI demand. But his, this guy's a signature kind of fashion accessory is leather jacket, which he's been wearing for years. And it's not a specific one. He has a whole range of them, but he's always wearing a leather jacket in the same way that Steve Jobs always wore black Izzy Miyake uh, turtlenecks. And Mark Zuckerberg's kind of signature item is a Bruno Cuccinelli t-shirt. So now people who idolize Wong are, are going out and buying Jensen Wong branded leather jackets. And they're always sort of branded without his permission, but you can So when you, you say it's branded, does that mean it's branded like on the web page that's selling it or on yes. the actual jacket itself? No, on the web page that's selling it. Okay, but it's like it's not like I can look inside the you know, I in 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 the lining of the jacket and it's gonna say Jensen Wang on it. I don't think so. But I, having not bought a jacket, I can't determine that definitively. But yeah, I think that's probably it for this week. We do have a Slate Plus on commercial real estate, and if it collapses, will it make a sound? Other than that, thanks for listening. Thanks for writing in on SlateMoney at Slate.com. Thanks to Shana Roth for producing, and we will be back next week with more Slate Money featuring Anna Shemansky. She's back. 